are blessed to have the Reverend Ralph Cunnington with us today to preach God's word to us. We were blessed earlier today. And if you were not able to be with us for our adult plenary session, you want to get the notes. Uh, Ralph will be happy to probably share those with us, but a great message and great inspiration about what is happening with City Church. <clears throat> a couple light notes before I kind of introduce Ralph. Um, Ralph is from Manchester. When he saw the forecast uh, for this morning, you know, overcast, wet, in uh, the 30s Fahrenheit, he probably thought he was waking up in Manchester. That's pretty much par for the course. He did get a really nice Friday here. I took him out to the refuge and we did all kinds of things. Uh, he was over at state. Um, yesterday, I thought he might be kind of busy and wanting to get some rest, but I asked him, would you like to go to the Mississippi State basketball game? And he surprised me at lunch by saying, yes, he would love to go. And further surprised, he actually had never been to a, an organized competitive basketball game in his life. As he mentioned this morning on Sunday school, he is a big uh, city, uh, Manchester City fan in soccer. He goes to lots of major uh, sporting related to what they call football, what we call soccer. And just, I think a week ago, he just saw uh, Manchester City, which is right now the number one team in the UK, defeat uh, Paris Saint-Germain, right? And, and, uh, which is a big win over Lionel Messi's team. So anyway, that was a big win. And you just beat Man U yesterday, right? Chelsea. Chelsea yesterday. Okay, so, but he went to see Mississippi State play basketball, and he really kind of caught the bug on this because Mississippi State won in a, in a really down-to-the-wire victory. If you watch the game, uh, but some Mississippi State fans have already started a fund because Mississippi State plays Ole Miss next week in basketball. And since Ralph's arrival, uh, you know, coincided with Mississippi State's dramatic win over Alabama, there's some folks who want to put together a fund to get Ralph back uh, next weekend for the Ole Miss game. So seriously, uh, Ralph is, uh, has for 19 years been blessed to be the husband of Anna, and they have three teenage children. Uh, Sophie, who is 15, Zach, who is about to turn 13 next month, and Jacob, who is 11. So he knows about teenagers and preteens a lot. Uh, he also is really been, he, the Lord has blessed him in a situation where the standard line was Manchester, very secular city, very post-Christendom city, never really was much of Christendom actually. Manchester just kind of blew by that. You know, it's the home of uh, the Communist Manifesto, for instance. Uh, Ralph and Matt were told when they were looking at forming this church in 2014, Manchester's where church plants go to die. And you've got to be crazy. You want to plant a church in the middle of the city, in urban Manchester. You know there's only 20-somethings and 30-somethings there, and they're in and out, and they're, they're in a different world. None of them are Christian. Why would you want to go plant a church there? And they said, that's precisely why we want to plant a church there. Uh, Ralph uh, reaches, and his gift is in reaching young professionals and other urbanites. And then Matt is artistic, and his wife is too. And they have a special calling and heart for creatives in the major city. So God has blessed them, and they've, they've really resourced over 50 other churches and ministries in just the last few years. Their church continues to grow and thrive and bring many to Christ, including many internationals people from Saudi Arabia, Iran, and elsewhere. God is speaking and bringing people to himself. 
So we're thrilled to have been able to partner with Ralph and Matt and City Church for the last three years and now for our fourth year, and also that Matt can be with us today. Matt, would you bring God's word to us? And we, uh, we are blessed to have you here. Well, what a, what a blessing and a privilege to be able to join with you in worship today and to bring God's words to you. Uh, let me pray for us, and then we're going to turn to 1 Corinthians. May the words of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, our Lord, our Rock, and our Redeemer. Amen. Well, would you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and I'm going to read the whole chapter for us. Listen to the word of the Lord. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife? As do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Kephas. Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake, because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision, for I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? that in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became 
as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. <clears throat> to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in the race all the runners run, but only one? receives the prize. So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath. But we, an imperishable. So, I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air. But I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. This is the word of the Lord. Well, well, can I ask you a question? And I've got to confess, it's a little bit impertinent and rude, but I'm British, so I can get away with it, yes? How often do you think about your own death? Now, I'm not an overly morbid person, honest, but fairly early on in my Christian life, I read Jonathan Edwards' Resolutions. Edwards was an 18th century American pastor theologian, and in his early 20s, he decided to set down 70 resolutions for the rest of his life. Listen to resolution nine. To think much on all occasions of my dying and of the common circumstances which attend death. Edwards thought a lot about his death, and I think the reason why was because of resolution 52. Listen to this. He wrote, I frequently hear persons in old age say how they would live if they were to live their lives over again, resolved that I will live just so as I can think I shall wish I had done, supposing I live to old age. So let me ask you, what will you regret on your deathbed? I know for a fact that I will regret the hours and hours and hours I spent watching Australian soap operas in my teenage years. I also know that I will regret the astonishingly large sum of money I spent on a video recorder just after DVDs had come out. And I know, I know I'm going to regret watching Jungle Cruise on the airplane on the way out to the States. You know, there is nothing like considering the end of our life, which of course is inevitable, to help us to get perspective on how we're living here and now. And as we turn to chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians, we're, we're given a snapshot, a, a brief glimpse into the life of the Apostle Paul. But the whole chapter is about him. Did you notice that? That the repetition, I, 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 I. It's incredibly personal, this part of the letter. But Paul is speaking about himself. He, he gives us a glimpse into his own priorities in life, into what drove him, into what motivated his decisions in life. And we're going to see three things this morning. Firstly, we're going to see gospel-shaped sacrifice, then gospel-shaped living, 
And then thirdly, gospel-shaped discipline. So firstly, verses 1 to 18, gospel-shaped sacrifice. Uh, We're joining 1 Corinthians in the middle of the letter. So let me give you the context. Uh, Chapter 8. Paul was addressing the the thorny issue of whether (coughs) the Corinthian Christians were free to eat food sacrificed to idols. And his answer, of course, was yes. Yes, you are. At a theoretical level, at least. Idols, they are false gods, which means they are nothing. They don't exist. The Corinthians, they are free to eat food sacrificed to idols if they want at a theoretical level. But we all know that decisions in the real world, they are never just made on a theoretical level, are they? Look at verse 1 of chapter 8. Paul reminds his readers that knowledge, theory, puffs up, but love builds up. The question a Christian asks is not simply, what can I do? The question that Christians should ask themselves is, what does love tell me to do? And so, yes, the, the Corinthians, they are free to eat food sacrificed to idols. They are. But the criteria of love, love for their fellow Christians who are still troubled by idols, might mean that they do not use that freedom. Now, in chapter 9, Paul goes on to develop that argument using an example from his own life. Let's see if we can follow the logic here. Firstly, in in verse 1, Paul outlines the evidence that he's an apostle. He says, don't you know that I have seen the risen Lord Jesus? Evidence number 1. And don't you know that you yourselves are proof that I am an apostle? You are the fruit of my apostolic work, evidence number two. So he says, I am an apostle, and then he goes on to say, verse three, you know that the apostles, they have certain rights. They have the right, verse four, to food and drink. And verse five, they they have the right to bring their wife and to bring their family along with them on missionary journeys. But Paul then goes on to, to provide the evidence for these rights. So in verse 7, he gives some examples from everyday life. Then he goes on and he gives some some examples from the Bible itself. Look at verse 9. Paul quotes from Deuteronomy chapter 25 verse 4, God in the Mosaic law tells farmers not to muzzle the ox when it's treading out grain. Why? Well, because The ox that's doing the work deserves to eat the grain it's treading. And look at the end of the verse. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Well, of course, in one sense it is, isn't it? God does care about the oxen. But much more does he care about his own workers, his apostles. And we might add to that his pastors too. You know that Pastor Lifer, he is your big ox here at First Press Starkville. It's pretty flattering, isn't it? 
But you see, the principle is clear. God's workers have a right to be materially supported by those they minister to, verse 11. God's word tells us that explicitly. But did you notice what Paul had decided? Second half of verse 12. Nevertheless, we have not made use of that right. Why? Well, because we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. You know, the city of Corinth is in Greece. And Greece at the time was awash with phony philosophers who went around peddling their philosophical teaching, trying to make a quick buck out of it. They were the health and wealth and prosperity teachers of their day. And Paul wanted to do everything in his power to distance himself from those phonies. To make sure that nothing that he did detracted from his message, the gospel of grace. That salvation is free. And so he decided not to use his right, his right to financial support. Instead, he stayed up every night throughout the night, making tents. Now, now we think of tent making. What do you think of immediately? You think of Bass Pro, don't you? Yeah, in Memphis, in the Memphis Pyramids. And we think, well, well, being a tent maker, that's not too bad. I'd love to work at Bass Pro. What a great store, so much fun every day. But you know, tents in the first century, they were not made from canvas. They were made of leather. They were big, heavy, stinky things. Paul's hands were almost certainly permanently dyed because every night he was handling leather. But Paul put up with it, verse 12, so that nothing would hinder the gospel. Friends, that is principled self-sacrifice. So what does that look like in Starkville today? Uh, Let me tell you about some American heroes. Heroes in the UK. Uh, On the 17th of September 1992, a a US F-111 fighter bomber was returning to its base in Upper Hayford in Oxfordshire. Uh, The pilot, Captain Jerry Lind, and his navigator, Major Mike McGuire, they'd been on a routine training flight. And as they approached the runway, the the aircraft they were in suddenly experienced a a near-total hydraulic failure, leaving the pilot with virtually no control over the plane. Ground control said, you need to eject immediately. You cannot land this plane. But they knew, the pilot knew that if he ejected, the plane was certain to land on the village below, leading to loss of life. So they didn't eject. They remained on the plane and flew it past the village. But by the time they passed the village, it was too late to eject, and they crashed and died. 
You know, Captain Lind and Major Maguire, they had the right to eject out of that play. They had a right to do that. But for the sake of others, they did not use that right. And they died. You know, City Church now has uh, just over 300 adults and 50 children. Uh, but when we launched, we were just 27 adults, and only five of those 27 adults were from Manchester. The other 22 of the 27 adults, they, they moved to Manchester from all around the country. Uh, one of the people who moved to Manchester was a girl in her late 20s called Nicola, and she moved from Birmingham. Now, now, Nicola, she was really well settled in Birmingham. She was at a great church that she'd been at for years. She loved Birmingham. And she found the prospect of moving to Manchester, she frankly found it scary. She didn't want to go there. She didn't really know the city or love the city. But she decided to move. She moved house. She moved jobs. And over time, she got to knew her, know her new colleagues at the University of Manchester. And she started inviting them along to church. And one Christmas, she invited her colleague, Angela, along to the Christmas carol service. And Angela came, and she said she really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for inviting me. But then there was nothing more for three years. And then the pandemic hit. And Nicola invited Angela along to a Christianity Explored course, looking at Mark's gospel online on Zoom. And during that course, Angela professed faith. You know, Nicola, she had the right to stay in the comfort of Birmingham. She, she had that right. But for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of people like Angela, Nicola gave up that right. Friends, you have a right to an above average standard of living. If you're in a good job and you work hard. You have that right. But for the sake of the gospel, you might choose not to use that right. So that you can give away money to serve the cause of the gospel here in Starkville, over in Manchester and elsewhere throughout the world. Friends, you have a right to stay here in Starkville. It's a lovely, lovely place. I know why you want to live here. It's beautiful. Even when it's snowing, it's beautiful. You have a right to, to all the wonderful things that this place provides. But for the sake of the gospel, you might choose to move to the UK. To a place where just under 1% of people attend a gospel church like this one. You might forgo your right to live here in Starkville. That, my friends, it is principled self-denial of your rights. And they are your rights. But you do it for the sake of the gospel. But why? Why would you do that? How? How would you do that? 
Uh, perhaps you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, and you think, boy, this guy they've got over from England, he's a bit extremist. I don't know how he made it through border control. What can I say? If that is you, the reason why Christians are willing to make sacrifices, it is not because we're trying to earn God's favor. Not at all. No, it is because God has enabled us to make those sacrifices by already having sacrificed something far greater for us. You see, God the Son, who forever lived in the perfect joy and happiness of the presence of God the Father and God the Holy Spirit, he gave up his rights. He left his right to the comfort of heaven in order to experience the agony of the cross. He denied himself the right to rule from the glory of heaven in order to rule from a Roman cross. And he did it for us. For us. You know, it, it was stunning that Captain Lind and Major Maguire gave up their lives to save people, to save limeys that they didn't know at all. It's amazing. But it is even more stunning that Jesus gave up his life for us because he knows us. He knows that far from being his friends, far from being good people, instead we are his enemies by nature. We, we are stubborn rebels who have shaken our angry fists at him saying, I want to rule my own life, and yet he died for us, giving his life for ours. Christians, Christians have been empowered to live lives of principled self-sacrifice because we have already been served by a God who has given up his rights for us. Gospel-shaped sacrifice. Secondly, verses 19 to 23, Paul shows how his gospel priorities shaped the way that he lived. You know, Paul was a unique man. There was no one really like him. Paul was born a Jew, and he was very well qualified as a Jew. Acts chapter 22 tells us that he received the most impeccable Jewish education under Rabbi Gamaliel, one of the premier rabbis of the day. But Paul, alongside being a premier Jew, he was also a Roman citizen, which meant that he had rights that were denied to the vast majority of people at the time. Paul was elite. He was well positioned. He was able to make a name for himself. He was able to make money for himself. He could have had anything he wanted. And yet, verse 19, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all. Why? That I might win more of them. You see, that was Paul's overriding motivation in life. He wanted to use all of his means, all of his privileges to win as many as possible for Christ. In order, verse 22, to save some. 
That meant that he was extraordinarily flexible. He was willing to change. He was willing to forgo his preferences, the things he liked to serve the cause of the gospel. Today we call it contextualization. He became a Jew to the Jews. He became a Gentile to the Gentiles. He became, verse 22, the weak to the weak. I wonder whether you've heard of Hudson Taylor, a great British missionary who went to China in the 18th century. And unlike the vast majority of missionaries at the time, Hudson Taylor decided to adopt the customs of his host country. So, so he wore Christian, uh, he wore Chinese dress. He, he, he ate Chinese food. He, he learnt the Chinese language. He, he even built homes and churches in the Chinese form of architecture. Uh, people back in jolly old England said that he'd gone native. He, he lost British values, and you know, if you lose British values, the next thing to go is you lose the gospel itself as well. But listen to what Hudson Taylor said, echoing Paul's words in verse 22. He said, let us in everything unsinful become Chinese, that by all means we may save some. Do you know, City Church Manchester is actually meeting right now. Okay, this is a sensible time to meet here, isn't it? 10.30 in the morning. In Manchester, it is 4.30 in the afternoon. From the start of City Church, we met at 4.30 in the afternoon. Now, there are a number of reasons for that. But the primary reason is, do, do you know what the vast majority of people in Manchester are doing at 10.30 in the morning on a Sunday? They're either asleep or they're playing soccer. And we wanted to have our church meetings at a time that was accessible to non-Christians. Almost every church in the UK has midweek Bible study groups that take place in people's homes. They're, they're called home groups. When City Church started, we didn't have any groups in homes. We did have small groups, but they all met centrally in the building that we rented in downtown Manchester. Do you know why? Because that is far more accessible to people coming from economically disadvantaged backgrounds who, who would never think of stepping foot in a middle-class person's home. And you know what? In our first couple of months as a church, we had a young lady from Nigeria turn up with her four children in tow, aged from nine down to one. She had just been abandoned by her abusive partner. And she'd stumbled into city church. She heard the gospel of our midweek groups. She then came back on a Sunday, heard the gospel again, again, and again, and again. And six months later, she was baptized as a new believer. Now her eldest child is age 16, and she is one of the most mature Christians in our youth ministry. Can I ask you, is your life, both personally and corporately, as First Press Starkville, radically shaped by the gospel? Are you willing to forgo what you are comfortable with, what you like, in order 
to win those that God has placed around you here in Starkville? Will you let your life be shaped by the priorities of the gospel? Will you say with the Apostle Paul, I have become all things to all people so that by all means I might save some? You know, living that way will require discipline, which brings us on to our third and most brief point. Uh, Look at verse 24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Now, now Paul, he's drawing on a local context here. Just down the road from Corinth, the Isthmian Games took place every couple of years. They weren't quite on a par with the Olympic Games that took place in Athens, but they were pretty close. And before the Isthmian Games, the the athletes would come to Corinth and they trained by running through the streets. They were self-disciplined. They went into strict training. And the Corinthian Christians saw this. And Paul's point is... You need to be like that too. Now we need to be careful here. We read this and we think, well, is Paul saying that the Christian life is like a race and that only one Christian is going to win it? Of course not. That can't be what he's saying. So is he saying that unless we put all of our energies into running the Christian race, we'll end up being disqualified? Verse 27, and we'll, we'll lose our salvation. That that is what it sounds like, isn't it? But of course, that can't be right either. Our self-discipline and our hard work, it did not save us, did it? It was Christ's death on the cross, taking the punishment we deserve in our place that saved us. We did nothing for our salvation. Our hard work didn't save us, and our hard work can't keep us saved. No, No, again, it's the finished work of Christ that keeps our salvation. So what is Paul talking about here? Well, I think the crucial clue is back six chapters in chapter 3, verse 13. And there in chapter 3, verse 13, we find the same word, which is translated disqualified, in verse 27 of chapter 9. In chapter 3, verse 13, and it is translated test. And back there, Paul was talking about how the quality of his gospel work, his church building work, would be tested, examined on the last day. You see, that is the race that Paul is talking about. Not the race to salvation, but the race to spending the rest of our lives in the most productive way possible. So can I ask you, Do you struggle with discipline in the Christian life? Do you find yourself constantly frustrated at your seeming inability to do the things you want to do? Do you find yourself frustrated that you don't keep up with your daily devotions? Frustrated that your family Bible times are so hit and miss? Do you find yourself frustrated that you keep on falling into the same patterns of sin again and again and again? Well, could it be because you haven't recognized that you're in a race? If I were to ask you this morning what your life mission is, would you have an answer? 
Do you know what race you're in? Well, if not, no wonder, verse 26, that you feel like running the Christian life is aimless. No, no wonder you feel like a boxer punching the air and getting nowhere. Uh, several years ago, my wife's brother announced to us suddenly at a Christmas uh, get-together that he was planning to break the world record for cycling around the world. Crazy! 18,000 miles. We were utterly shocked at this Christmas get-together. You see, James, James knew how to ride a bike. He'd been taught by his parents. And, you know, he'd done a, a few long cycle rides. But he was a furniture maker by profession. He's no professional cyclist. But you know what? With that goal in view of breaking the world record, he spent the next six months training. And he managed to break the world record by 18 days. If you're a Christian here this morning, you have an even more challenging and exciting race ahead of you. But one where you will receive not merely a world record, which will be broken six months later, which is what happened to James. But you will receive a wreath. You will receive a crown. The crown of bringing others to glory with you, which will last, verse 25, forever. So live a life of gospel-shaped discipline now. Let me close with one more resolution from Edwards. Resolution 15. Resolved. I will act so as I think I shall judge would have been best and most prudent when I come into the future world. That is gospel-shaped vision. Let us live gospel-shaped lives. Amen. Let me pray.